Well, we are in the uh, we're in uh, the middle part of uh, we just finished up Ecclesiastes, and uh, after spending so many weeks in there, uh, you know there was so much information uh, that we were able to mine from Ecclesiastes. So many good uh, thoughts of wisdom and instructions on life that we were able to take away uh, from Ecclesiastes. And so, uh, Pastor Tony, as he mentioned a few weeks ago, it just felt like it was a good time for us to take a break and kind of uh, think about some of those outliers that we didn't uh, specifically address in Ecclesiastes. And so uh, last week we talked about, uh, Pastor Tony talked about uh, worry, and he talked about how oftentimes in life uh, worry uh, kind of takes over and uh, distracts us from uh, that which God intended for us. And so uh, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for people to spend a lot of time in worry. Uh, and uh, I saw a sign the other day, it said, today is the tomorrow that you worried about yesterday. And uh, so, you know, when we think about worry, uh, we, we were able to get some good godly uh, biblical instruction for that. And so as we think through that, uh, as I was thinking about uh, Ecclesiastes and the thoughtfulness that, uh, that Solomon offered us, I began to think about uh, the concept of satisfaction. So I want you to think this afternoon about your life. And I want you to ask yourself the question, which we'll revisit in a few minutes, but ask yourself the question, am I satisfied? So if you were to answer that question, what would you say? Would you say, well, yeah, I, I am satisfied. I, there's nothing that I want or need. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You know, if, if this is as good as it gets, is this all that it is? It's plenty. It's enough. So are you satisfied? And, and along that same vein is, uh, what is it that satisfies you? So as I was thinking about this and thinking about satisfaction and uh, satisfaction in the Lord, I was thinking about being satisfied. And uh, so we're going to talk about satisfaction tonight. And we're going to look at the things that satisfy God. And uh, we're going to talk about some things that uh, satisfy uh, or should satisfy the believer. And uh, so I just want you to think about that as we're going through this is, is what satisfies me? What is it that brings the most satisfaction. You see, we're fickle people, and uh, a little while back, I went to a restaurant to eat, and uh, so, you know, of course, there's many uh, choices on the menu, and for one dollar more, I could have all-you-can-eat shrimp. Now, who's going to pass that up, right? I mean, I'm not passing that up, and so I said, I'll take that, and so I ordered it, and so uh, they brought the food out, and so she, uh, she said, uh, would you like some more? And I said, well, yeah, of course I would like some more. And so they brought a second plate of shrimp. And so uh, now I'm two plates deep in my, you know, adventure of all-you-can-eat shrimp. And uh, so the lady came back up to the table, and she said, would you like some more shrimp? And so I thought to myself, now, I did sign up for all-you-can-eat, and it just doesn't feel right to stop at two plates. And so I said, sure, I'll take another plate. So she brings another plate of shrimp. So now I'm on my third plate of shrimp. I've lost all control whatsoever, and I've, I'm in this shrimp coma now, and I'm eating all of this shrimp. So uh, as I finished up my plate of shrimp, she comes back to the table and says, now, granted, I wasn't eating alone. I'm not going to throw anybody else under the bus, but uh, I wasn't eating alone. So she says, hey, would you all like some more shrimp? And I thought, I just can't eat any more shrimp. <laughs> Yes, someone at the table did say they're done. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, I thought, you know what? What's one more plate of shrimp going to hurt, right? 
So I said, sure, why not? I'll take another plate. So as I'm waiting, the time uh, that passed between my third plate and my fourth plate was a little longer than it had been previously. And I realized before the fourth plate of shrimp arrived that, you know what? You are full. You don't need any more shrimp. And so I did take my fourth plate, and out of obligation to the cook, I ate all of it because, you know, I just I didn't want him to feel bad. Uh, but I did eat all of it. But, you know, as I thought about that, and, you know, I'm in the middle of studying for this uh, message, I thought, you know, we're really kind of all the same way, is that we've all had that third plate of shrimp, if you will. You know, we've all been filled to the brim with everything that we want or need. But there's this time lapse that happens to where we, we think there's more that we want or we think there's more that we need. And in between getting or receiving or, uh, you know, that fourth plate, we come to the realization that I don't really need anymore. I'm, I'm really okay. I'm, I'm satisfied with what I have or, or, or what is present in my life. And so Solomon's challenge to us was to change the fix of our gaze from the circumstances of life that are under the sun and instead peer into the life that we were created to live over the sun. And so, of course, the title of our study in Ecclesiastes was Over the Sun. And so the objective was to stop looking around and to start looking up. And Solomon uh, spent uh, 12 chapters saying, hey, you need, to, you need to change the gaze. You need to look up. You need to begin to see the things that are greater than the circumstance in which you find yourself. And, and, and when I talk about being satisfied, I know a lot of times we, I give a joke about food or, you know, we may, our minds may run to possessions, uh, but it's also uh, satisfaction in relationships as well. So, it, you know, don't uh, think that it just encompasses just one specific area of our life. And that's what Solomon was saying is, look, you're not going to find satisfaction in just uh, one thing that you see under the sun. Now, you're going to find satisfaction in the one thing that you see over the sun, and that's what Solomon continues to try to drive home the point. And so one of the takeaways that we discussed uh, last week with Pastor Tony uh, was, the, uh, was our tendency to worry, which directs our attention away from the majesty of who God is. You know, again, you know, today is the yesterday that, or the uh, tomorrow that we worried about yesterday, uh, it does direct our attention, and, and, and it causes us to lose sight of the here and now. And so, ask, you know, as you ask yourself the question, am I satisfied, what is it that satisfies me, if today is as good as it would ever be uh, in your relationships, if today was as good as it, it was ever going to be in your checking account, if today was as good as it was ever going to be in life in general, is it good enough? Is that, is that okay? Are you satisfied with that? You see, in life, we, we always want to get more and more and more when the Bible says that we've been given all that we need according that pertains to life and godliness. And so our tendency to worry, then, it directs us away from the things in which we actually need. And so we start looking away from the majesty of God, and we begin to see things, and we make them bigger. You see, what worry is, in essence, is it's you taking a situation, a scenario, and elevating it to a position that in your mind makes it larger than God. Now, we know that that's, of course, not the case. There's nothing that's bigger than the majesty of God. But in our hearts and our minds, what we do is we allow things to supersede that and to take precedence over the majesty of who God is. Because if we had a right view of who God is and a right view of who we are, we wouldn't worry. 
because we know that God is sovereign and that God's going to handle every situation, every circumstance that we find ourselves in. The Bible talks about uh, the fact that God supplies uh, the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air, and so uh, certainly he's going to take care of us. And so if we understand that, if we see God rightly for who he is, it would be easier for us to handle those situations. But we all know that that's not the case. And so at the worry, at the heart of worry, rather, is a dissatisfaction with the potential for things to end apart from our control or desire. And so what dissatisfaction really is, is saying that I don't have the ability or the power uh, to control something, that there's a chance that this may end the way that I don't want it to end. And so because of that, I'm worried about it. Because if we trusted in the sovereignty of God wholly and completely in every situation, then we would be okay with whatever that result would be. Uh, But what, again, often happens because of our sinful human hearts is that we began to desire things, desire outcomes, desire scenarios of how we think it should end, and so, therefore, we worry that it may not end that way. And so, it's really a dissatisfaction with control. So, the goal for the believer, then, is to be satisfied. The goal for the believer is to be satisfied regardless of circumstances or possessions. And so no matter, uh, you know, hopefully tonight as we go through this, you'll be encouraged that no matter what circumstance, no matter how much or how little uh, you may obtain in life, that it is enough, that Jesus is enough. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, and he talks about this very topic. He says, as it's written on your handout, that uh, not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So now we know a lot about Paul, thankfully, and so we know a lot of things that happened in his life, and we know that there were times where it was very good, and we know that there were times where it was not so good. As a matter of fact, there were times where it was very, very bad. And he says, I know in verse 12 how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he follows that up with, you know, arguably one of the most popular verses in the Bible, which is Philippians 4, 13, which says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says, look, here's the deal. I've had a lot of things. I've had, you know, lots of opportunities. I've had lots of possessions. I've had nothing. I've been without. I've been without food. I've been without possessions. And I've learned that I can do everything through Christ Jesus. So he, he separates the ability of who God is from the possessions or the circumstances that were in his life and says, good or bad, much or little, I can do all things through Christ Jesus. And so he begins to talk about that. And so hopefully as we uh, go through this, you'll, you'll begin to see where that comes from in Paul's life. Now, as Solomon was talking uh, through Ecclesiastes in 27 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses the word vanity, and he uses it in an attempt to redirect our pursuit of satisfaction that we try to get from the wrong things. And so Solomon says uh, in 27 different occasions that uh, the vanity of which we pursue often ends with dissatisfaction or the desire for more because we're pursuing the wrong things. Now, if we were to you know, turn on the television tonight and talk about the topic of the hour, if we were to talk about, uh, if we were to poll the United States and ask, you know, what is the one thing that would make you happy? What is the one thing that would satisfy you? Uh, Regardless of the demographic, it's going to be a possession. There's going to be one thing that people say, well, that's the one thing that's going to make me happier. That's the one thing that will satisfy me. 
And so Solomon brings the argument to the table that people pursue the wrong things. And so the question that we started with, am I satisfied, what is it that satisfies me, can be answered by, are you pursuing the wrong things? You see, satisfaction is not something that you obtain. Satisfaction is not something that uh, you earn or you work for. Satisfaction is something that is a gift from God. And so if we're out pursuing satisfaction, again, if we poll uh, you know, the 350-plus million people that live in the United States, uh, one of the most materialistic societies known to man, it would be something that it would be a possession in which the majority of those who answered say that would be the one thing that would satisfy me. That would be the one thing that would cause me to have happiness. But you see, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasures in all of his toll. This is God's gift to man. Pleasure in all that you do is the gift that you receive from the Lord. And so satisfaction then is something that we receive from God, that God gives us, that we would have the ability to enjoy the things that we do. Now, it doesn't matter what it is that you do. It could be uh, one of the most difficult jobs. It could be a very easy job. But satisfaction comes from relishing in the fact that it was a gift that God gave you, and you will receive it as such. And so as we dive into satisfaction then, I hope you begin to see, uh, maybe your heart begins to turn from the things that you actually see to the things that you actually do not see. You see, when a person is satisfied, they are at peace with the circumstances of their life. Now, there's no qualifiers in that comment. When a person is satisfied, they're at peace with the circumstances in their life. And so, like Paul said, I've learned to whether abound or have little that I, I can, I'm satisfied. I'm okay with whatever that is. Now, you know, it's, it's difficult sometimes in life when we find ourselves in very hard places to try to, to work through that in our heart to be at peace. And so, satisfaction then is a sense of peace. And so, you come to the point when you're satisfied to where you say, you know what, whatever it is, Lord, not my will but yours be done. And so the opposite of worry then is peace. The opposite of worry then is peace. And so uh, peace really is satisfaction at rest. So it's resting in the fact that you're satisfied regardless of what may or could possibly change in your life. The word satisfaction or satisfied actually comes from the Latin word that means to be contained. It means to be contained. It means that, that you have, that all of your desires are contained within now. And so whatever is present in the now, you're okay with that. And so as I was studying through this and, and praying through that and just thinking about satisfaction, you know, what is it that brings satisfaction? What is it that satisfies uh you know, not, not the human heart, but the Christian's heart. You know, what is it that, that brings us to the point that we're okay, that all of it is contained uh, in the here and now, that it is enough? You see, the contented person's desires are bound or they are contained by what he or she already has. So if you were to take inventory of your life today and you were to look at everything that you've amassed uh, you know, friends, possessions, opportunities, 
Is it, is it enough? If the lights were turned out today, would you be satisfied with that? What is it that, dr- that drives your satisfaction? Well, in order for us to achieve satisfaction in life, I think it's important that we must first know what satisfies God. And so I want to share with you a couple things that we see in Scripture tonight uh, that the Word of God says that God is pleased with or God is satisfied with. So uh, first of all, the satisfaction of God. What is it that satisfies God? Well, a couple things that I'll submit to you tonight. The first thing is that it's faith. Uh, faith satisfies God. Faith in who He is and in, and in His ways is what pleases God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Uh, for wh- whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so we learn in Hebrews chapter 11 that faith in who God is is what drives the pleasure of God, that God is pleased when we have faith in Him, that when we believe in who He is, that we w- when we believe uh, in, in the ways of, of what He does, God is, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, God is pleased with that faith pleases God. So the satisfaction of God then is faith. Uh, number two, satisfaction for God is living a life that pleases God. Living a life that pleases God. So Colossians 1.10 says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 10, so he says, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that's fully pleasing to him. You see, worthy that uh, the word Paul uses here means of equal weight. And so, in other words, he's saying to live a life that is equal to God's standards. That's what pleases God. You know, Jesus said to be holy as I am holy. So living a life that is equal to the standard of God pleases God. Now, let's think through this for a second. How can a sinful person live a life that is equal to the life of God? Well, we can't, right? We, we can't achieve perfection as Jesus, which is why we needed salvation. And so what happens in our life is that we read verses like this. So I speak from a, a you know, past legalism perspective, and I, I see the verse that says, Walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And so what happens in, in my heart is that my heart will say, well, then that means that I've got to do more if I want to please God. You see, we started out talking about what pleases me, and now we, we've turned the corner and saying, what is it that I do, what is it in my life that I can live that will bring pleasure to God? And what happens oftentimes in, in the flesh is that we want to have, uh, we want to get some credit. And we'll talk about this in a second. And so we began to do things. So the legalist says, well, if, I, if I'm going to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, well, then that means I've got to get out and I've got to do. And maybe your heart feels the same way, that, well, I want to please the Lord. You see, every believer should have the, uh, uh, on the agenda of life, so to speak, to, to please the Lord, that your number one aim is to live a life that pleases God. And so if we are unable to do that, if we're unable to live a life that is equal to God's standards, well, then how is it possible that we can please God? How do we do that? I mean, just think about it. I spent a lot of time last week thinking about that. How is it that if, if living a life equal to the, the standard of God pleases God 
and I'm not able to live that life, how can I possibly please God? So how is it possible to please God? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, our world says that you earn and you do and you achieve and you're rewarded for that, right? You get a raise based on merit and you have uh, performance-based reviews and and all that is based on you doing a better job and you being rewarded for that. And so in our brains, in our DNA, in the economy of humanity is that we would live a life uh, that we would do more, we would You know, we see athletes get achievements and awards, and we have movie awards, and we have music awards, because it's who did better than someone else. And so our entire life is is filled with all of this reward, reward based on works, reward based on works, reward based on works. And then the gospel says, well, you've been saved by faith, and it has nothing to do with your works, which completely obliterates the world's standards. That you do more and you, you achieve more and you earn more and then you will be rewarded for that great work in which you have done. So how is it possible for us to please God? Well, it's made possible by living a life through the completed work of Jesus Christ. So it's made possible by the completed work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. It's not on your handout, but you should write it down. Colossians 3, 3, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So your life, my life is hidden with Christ in God. So let's think this through for a second. If there's nothing that I can do on my own merit to please God, that I'm incapable of working or earning to please God, to satisfy God, to be equal to the standards of God. And because of the completed work of Jesus Christ, I have the opportunity then to be a partaker of the, the, the divine nature. We, we say this verse oftentimes, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God. And so we stand, therefore, before God the Father. So when you and I enter into heaven, we stand before God, guess what's going to happen? We're going to stand there, and God's going to see all of the things in which we've done, right? And none of those things, absolutely zero of those things, no matter how good of a person we think we may be, and listen, a legalist thinks they're great, you stand before God, and it won't be good enough. It's not possible. And so here's what's going to happen. How will we be granted entrance? How will our works be pleasing to the Lord? Because of this, because Jesus will stand beside us, and he'll say, he's with me, she's with me. It's because the completed work of Jesus Christ. So if we want to find satisfaction in life, our satisfaction then has to come from the fact that we are living through and in the life that Jesus Christ lived. And so that's the only way that we can bring pleasure to the Lord is to live a life in Jesus Christ, to be hidden in Jesus Now, as much as the world today wants to make a name for itself, if your aim in life is for you to be known, well, then you're not going to please the Lord. You see, you know, all these things of, you know, if nobody's going to look out for you, you got to look out for yourself and, and live for yourself. But the economy of God is not that way. 
And so if we're going to think about satisfying the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it's got to be in a life that is lived through Jesus Christ. You see, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 says, Behold, a voice from heaven said. Now, this is big. God the Father spoke to where people would hear, and this is what he said. He said, This is my beloved Son. It was an audible voice with whom I am well pleased. God the Father said to the Son, This is Jesus and I am pleased. And so we see God speaking uh, very specifically about the pleasure that he received through the life of Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to follow this thought through. So, So God has in his possession then the totality of his eternal delight. There is zero chance for there to be more delight than what God had and has in his Son. And it is contained within the person of his son. There is nothing that needs to be or can be added. Here's an apologetic statement for you. There is absolutely no one or nothing that can be done further to merit satisfaction of who God is. All of these other religions that we've seen uh, throughout history that come forward and say, well, you've got to do this, and you've got to be good enough for this, and this has to be done. Here's these. No, it's not. That's 100% false. It's a lie from the enemy to try to distract you from the fact that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. There was a book written a few years ago, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that couldn't be further from, I mean, that couldn't be uh, more true than it is right now in your life and in mine. There's nothing that we can do more to please God than to accept what Jesus has already done. Because here's what, here's what happens in our life is we think, when we think that we can do and we can earn, I've been down this path that we think we can do and we can earn to satisfy or to please God. Here's what happens. That means that we think that we can do greater works than what Jesus did. Think about that. When we say, well, I'm going to do this because it's going to bring greater pleasure to God, the totality of the eternal delight of God was satisfied in His Son, Jesus. But what religion does is it sets forth the false concept that God looks at man, and in his religious deeds, we might get, grant, be granted the satisfaction of God. We think, you know, religion says do more. Christianity is the only uh, belief system that says you can't do it yourself. Jesus says, I did it for you. It's the only belief system that says that. So religion sets forth this false concept. You see, I, I started thinking about that. And, you know, in my history, I, I just thought, you know, I, I've, I've spent a long time trying to please God. And I thought about, why did I do that? I mean, it really, I, I had this, like this aha moment as I was studying through this. And, and, and so, it was, you know, I've spent a lot, why did I do that? What, what is it that I thought that I was doing? And so I just, I went back in my heart and my mind and just thought about, you know, all the all the things that I thought was, you know, earning. And, uh, and I just thought, why, why am I doing those things? And, and I remember, uh, you know, the verses on your paper. I remember the next verse on your handout. And I remember, you see, the Bible says in Matthew 25, 21, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
I've known that verse. I, I know that, you know, that whole area of Scripture, Matthew 24 and following. And, uh, you know, there's a, I don't, maybe there's a legalist rule book. I don't know. Maybe there is. Uh, that, you know, here are the key chapters to use to control behavior. You know, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, these are good chapters for you to use. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, but nonetheless, I remember thinking, so I was thinking about this this past couple weeks, and I thought to myself, that, that is why I did that. I was driven by the fact that I wanted to stand before God and Him say, you did a great job, Matt. Man, fantastic job. Look at all the wonderful things that you did. That was, what my, that was my motivation, was to stand before God and Him look at all the wonderful works that I had done, right, and say, man, amazing, you did it, fantastic, great job. And so that was the motivation. That was the driving force is that I would, I would be the one that was told, great job, you did it. Maybe you've been the same way. Hopefully I can help you with that. You see, the flesh's desire is to have skin in the game. We want credit. And so in an attempt to please God, what the flesh does is it tries to do things, good things. You know, it's a sermon for another day, but it's good based on my definition, not on God's definition, right? I, I want to qualify the things that I do for good so that they will count. And so the flesh wants skin in the game, and so you do things because you want credit for it, right? And so you say, well, if, that's how the world is built. So we do things, and we want credit for those things. And so when we get credit for them, we think, well, if I did all these good things, remember a few years ago, Pastor Tony preached a message, the tell of the scales, you remember? And if I do enough good things, it'll outweigh the bad things. And so some, somehow God's going to look and say, wow, good job. You did more good things than bad. All right, here you go. You can come in. I mean, that, that was the driver for me. That was the motivation, was to, to stand there and to hear, to satisfy God. You see, there's a lot of what people try to satisfy God. You know, some of you are looking at me like a cow at a new gate, but listen, we try to do it. We want God to be satisfied. And so we think if we do more, we act more, we earn more, then God's going to say, well, that was a lot better than, you know, Jimmy over here. And so for that reason... All right, so let's look at a couple of ways that we try to satisfy God. Just a couple of ways that people attempt to satisfy God. You've probably done this, that we perform tasks out of duty, out of obligation. We say, well, you know, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. You know, a lot of times I've read some articles on this and, you know, really challenged my thought process. Maybe have mentioned this before. Uh, but just, even in just things that we say, oh, you know, I'd love to come, but I can't. I've got to go to church tonight. I, I, I've got to go to church. I can't, I can't do that. Oh, you know, I would do that, but I, I can't. I, I've got to go on this mission trip. You know, I'd love to do that, but, I, I, you know, I signed up to go down and help, you know, with the children's choir. I mean, think about what you're saying. I've said it before. What, what, what message are we relaying that we're doing it out of duty? Well, you know, I'd love to help you, but I can't. We, we don't, you listen, you don't have to come to church. You don't have to do that. Nobody's making you do it, right? It, it should be out of desire, not out of obligation. Hey, I get to go. I get the opportunity to go and, and serve on a mission team, or I get the opportunity to, to go to church tonight and worship the Lord. So people think that they're satisfying God, 
And there's a lot of people in, in our world, even in the Baptist faith, that think that coming to church satisfies God, that somehow, well, God, I was there a lot. Like he's keeping roll and saying, all right, well, you missed three Sundays. No blessing for you this month. You know, that's not how God works. And so we think that we perform these tasks. Well, then uh, we're going to do this duty that you do things because you have to, not because you want to. And so, but we think that if we just do that, if we just go through the motions, that there, it's done. I did it. You said to do it. I did it. I mean, how, what would that look like tangibly? I mean, just think about that. What would it look like tangibly if you loved your neighbor out of duty instead of out of desire? I mean, let's just think about it. You go to your neighbor's house, you knock on the door, you have a pie that you baked or bought, and and you've got this scowl on your face, and you say, look, I don't like you, but the Bible says that I've got to love my neighbor, and so here, I loved you. I mean, how would that turn out? Not very well, right? And do you think God's looking down saying, well, that wasn't exactly the way I wanted you to do it, but you did it, so i got to give you credit? I mean, no, of course not. But, but we see things that way, right? We, when we perform out of duty, that's really what we're saying, is that, God, I did this, and, and so you, you said to do it, and so I'm going to obey that out of duty. Number two, that we obey because, so that God won't get us, you know, right? Well, God, I did this. And so now you owe me. You said to do these good things. You said to, you know, to uh, care for the orphans and the widows. You said to love my neighbor. You said, uh, you know, to hide your word in my heart. So, God, I've memorized some scriptures. I've, you know, I've done all these things, right? Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 7, right? In that verse where it says, hey, you know, there will be those who say to me, Lord, Lord, I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and I've done that. Out of duty. So he, he doesn't, so we do these things out to, you know, out of duty, or we do it so that God will owe us. Well, such a self-centered view of salvation and certainly of God's perspective, it keeps the soul in a continuous state of condemnation and dissatisfaction. You, you may have been there before. That you, you, it's in this circle. You just keep going around and around because you, you do good and then you think God owes you and then you fail and then now you owe him. And then you do good and you think God owes you and then you fail and now you owe him. And it's just this circular uh, state of condemnation. So here's the question. Is good and faithful servant something that only good believers will hear? So some people are going to show up and, and they, did, they knocked it out of the park and God's going to say, great job. And then there's going to be Nominal believers, let's say, that show up and God's going to say, eh, uh, you didn't really do any good. You weren't very faithful, but I do owe you, so come on in. Now, that's not going to happen, right? Not going to happen. So is good and faithful something that only good, quote, good believers will hear? Well, might I submit to you tonight that every believer who stands before God will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. you got to be a believer, right? Right? That's how you're going to hear it. Pastor Tony's the only one who amen that. Now, I told him Wednesday night, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Now, that ought to be a point. We ought to be amen in every line on this page when we come to the realization of that, that we stand before God, and because of the completed work of Jesus, 
God's going to look at me through the lens of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. He will look at me through the lens of Jesus and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because I am entering through the works of Jesus, not through the works of Matt. And the same is true for you if you are a believer. So every believer who will stand before God then will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. How do I know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, I am sure of this. Now, this is not Paul saying, I think or I hope or, you know, probably. I am sure of this. How many times did he say that? Not many. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will bring it to completion. So if you are here and you are a believer, and we'll assume that you are, if you're a believer, then that means that when you stand before God, that he started a good work in you. The day that he brought salvation to you, he began a good work in you, and he says, guess what? I will complete it. I will finish it, which is exactly what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, because what was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. He did it. He accomplished the task. And so every believer who stands before God will hear that. So the satisfaction of God for you is not based upon your ability or my ability to perform for him, but by the sufficiency of what Jesus has already accomplished. So we'll stand before God the Father, and he will be satisfied. But he'll be satisfied because of the perfect life lived through Jesus Christ, that Jesus did it. Not that you and I ever had the opportunity or the ability to do it. So there's nothing that's lacking in regard to your salvation. The only thing that is lacking is an experiencing and an enjoyment of salvation in a lot of Christians' hearts. Is that we're not, we're not enjoying, we're not experiencing, because here's what happens. Because we start comparing what we're doing, uh, you know, based on what the world says, and we're applying worldly logic to biblical reasoning. And so we say, well, if I'm doing more, I'm going to earn something at work, so that's got to be the way it is in the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. You, you do things for the kingdom of God. We participate in obedience in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus did not in replacement of what Jesus did. And so there's nothing that's lacking. And so what, the question we ask ourselves then is, what is the greatest hindrance to satisfaction? What is it that's keeping you from being satisfied? You know, we started out with, am I satisfied? Maybe you said no. Well, what's keeping that? What, what, is, what is the greatest hindrance? Well, I probably know the answer. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this, and so I'll read uh, an excerpt from uh, his uh, conversation on this. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the gospel. So he says, if we think about all the amazing things that are promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Listen, our desires are not too strong, C.S. Lewis submits, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. He says this. He says, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for lesser pleasures. Why are we we not? If you're here tonight and you're not satisfied, the reason that you're not satisfied is that you've settled for something lesser than what God is offering. That you've tried to find satisfaction, you've tried to find pleasure in your job, or you've tried to find satisfaction or pleasure in your relationships with humanity or in possessions, and you've, you've taken victory or you've received temporary satisfaction, so to speak, in the small things of life, and it never lasts. And so what happens is that you, you become dissatisfied with that which was never meant to bring you satisfaction, so you begin to search again for what is more satisfaction. Isn't that how addiction works? Is that you take small things and, and it satisfies or it curbs the desire, and then it no longer curbs the desire, and so then you begin to pursue more or heavier or more potent, and then it's just this never-ending effect. And then till you reach the point to where nothing satisfies. And so what we've done as, as a world is that we've taken uh, the majesty of God and the ability to be utterly and completely satisfied with what Jesus has already offered us, and we've said, well, on the, on the route to me uh, 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 accepting or receiving that majesty, that life in which I was uh, created to live, I'm going to be distracted by small and lesser pleasures and live a life that lives for those smaller and lesser pleasures from one to the other. We're like a ping pong ball going back and forth to small pleasures. Think about that. Wow. What, what have we been sidetracked with? What has distracted us and and deceived us into believing that it was satisfying? We've accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled. I've been to a lot of churches. Uh, You know, I've had the opportunity to speak at a lot of churches, and uh, there's a lot of unhappy people walking down some of those church halls. What, what in the world? How is that possible? Because their joy shriveled. They've settled for lesser pleasures and power or control or possessions or, you know, fill in the blank has become the catalyst for their joy. And again, like an addiction is, you know, the smaller things are no longer satisfying. And so they lost the capacity for joy. Our greatest hindrance then to satisfaction is lesser pleasures is settling for something less. We've all done it. We've, you know, probably in your mind right now, you're thinking of things that you once sought satisfaction out of that ultimately led to dissatisfaction, and you're thinking to yourself, we all do. You get to the end, to the other side of that, and you ask yourself, why in the world did I think that that was the answer? You see, satisfaction, you know, if you ask yourself, are you satisfied? Well, here's how you can know. Satisfaction manifests itself in the form of a joy-filled life. So, you know, here, can I answer the question for you? Are you satisfied? Yes. Are you joyful? If you have joy, you're satisfied. You see, you, if, if there's joy present in your life, what's happened is that you've come to a point to, to give over the keys, to give over the reins, to give over control, and to believe that. 
Not to just say that God is sovereign, but to live that God is sovereign. Not just to believe that God is good, but to live that God is good. And whatever turns out, then I'm just going to be happy in the moment. I'm going to receive joy from the fact that God is in control, and I'm not responsible for how this thing's going to turn out. That's what joy is. And so satisfaction, if you're satisfied, well, then you have joy. If you have joy, then you're satisfied. But you see, joy doesn't come from circumstances. And so you may say, well, you know, I want to be satisfied. I want to have joy, but you just don't know what's going on in my life. And, you know, I may not. But I can tell you that biblically the Bible says that joy is not something that we receive from the good circumstances in life because that's based on us defining what's good, right? So joy doesn't come from circumstances. Well, let me tell you how the Bible tells us that. In the garden, Jesus told the disciples what? He said that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. So this is pre-crucifixion. Jesus knows that in a few hours, he's about to uh, die the most gruesome death on the cross. And so he tells the disciples when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he says that uh, in Mark 14, 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And so Jesus says that he's very sorrowful, that his soul is, is very heavy. But then, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, Hebrews chapter 12 says this, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, his soul was sorrowful, But the Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So the cross was, yeah, it wasn't joyful, but there was great joy ahead. And so for the joy that was set before him. So the circumstance of the cross did not determine the joy of Jesus. So the circumstance of our life, good, bad, or indifferent, can't determine the joy in which we have in our lives. So therefore, biblical joy and satisfaction biblical joy and satisfaction in Christ is what it is the foundation that sustains the believer so how you make it through the good times how you make it through the hard times is that you find your satisfaction that I find my satisfaction in Christ that the well done good and faithful servant is because Jesus is my representative You see, true joy, it only comes in hard things. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about joy. I thought about our church. You know, true joy doesn't come in hard things. And so I just just thought about our church. So let's just talk about a few things that happen in our church. So uh, let's talk about missions. Is it easy to go on a mission trip? No, it's hard. I mean, you, you, you've got to uh, raise the money. You've got to, you know, whatever that amount may be. You go to Brazil, it's, you know, $1,500, $2,000. You get on a plane. You travel uh, eight to ten hours on one of the flights. One of the flights, you take two or three flights. You get to Brazil. You take a bus ride. So, you know, it takes about 24 hours for you to get there. Then you're on the other side, you know, you're very near the equator, so it's very hot. And so you get the opportunity uh, to serve in, in, a, in a third world country where people have absolutely nothing, and you spend 10 days there. That's not easy. That's hard. Think about, think about foster care. Think about Rescue 100. 
I mean, that's not easy, is it, right? You open up your house to someone that you don't know because they need help, and you become their family, and they're just, you know, they blend right in, and so you're serving, and, 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 then, and then what happens when, you know, guess what? It's time for them to go home, and, and, you know, you're happy for them that they're reunified, but then there's that void that's left in your heart that, you know, you just spent five months with an infant, and now they're going home. That's hard. That's hard. But there's joy in that. There's joy. You know, Pastor Tony talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's joy in the hard things. We don't get satisfaction from easy things. Satisfaction will never come. That's why the church member who comes in and, and, and you know, stays in the back and, and just is a nominal attender and, and doesn't get involved in anything, doesn't go to, to small group, doesn't get involved in any relationships, doesn't serve, that, that person's not satisfied. You may think on the outside, you know, that, that they show up and, oh, well, you know, they've got it easy. They don't have any responsibilities. That person is the most dissatisfied person in the church because they're doing easy things and there's no satisfaction in easy. I mean, think about this. Here's the example that I gave Wednesday. Let's say that all of us together said, you know what, we want to set a record. And so we're all going to get out and we're going to go to John Clark Road and we're all going to set a record on the mile. We're all going to go out and we're going to run the mile in record-setting pace. And so we go out and we all start blazing the mile. And two hours later, we finish the mile. And so we say, yes, we did it. We ran the mile in, one, uh, in two hours. We did a mile in two hours. In 60 minutes, we ran a mile. Right? That would be amazing, right? And so we would all, we would all pose for a photo, and they would put that photo in the Sun-Herald, and the caption would be, Michael Memorial Group runs mile in record-setting two-hour pace. And we would run around and we would, we would be on TV and they would interview us. How in the world did you run a mile in two hours? Well, it was hard. I trained really hard for it. I showed up for church and they said we were going to run. And I just got out there and I gave it my all and we did it in two hours. How, how insane would that be that we would receive satisfaction from doing something as running a mile in two hours? You can crawl a mile in two hours, right? That, there's no satisfaction in easy Satisfaction would be if we all got out there and we all ran it in seven or eight minutes or six or seven minutes, right? That would be amazing. But there's no satisfaction in easy. And so we think that, oh, if life can just be easy, then I'm going to be satisfied in Christ. You'll never be satisfied. If you want to do great things for the kingdom of God, then you're going to go to hard places to do that. And if you want to get satisfaction and joy in doing that, well, guess what? It will be difficult. I had a, a professor from seminary. They planted a church uh, in Las Vegas a few years back, and their motto uh, is doing t- uh, tough things in hard places so that God gets all the glory. Doing tough things in hard places so that God gets all the glory. That's joy. That's satisfaction. Is doing something that's hard. So you want satisfaction? Do something hard. Right? I mean, again, how do we receive, how do we satisfy the Lord? Through living a life uh, hidden in Jesus, that our representative is Jesus, that he's our, our ambassador. What did Jesus do? Didn't he spend six hours on a cross one Friday afternoon? 
for the sins of humanity? Who else has done that? Nobody. So satisfaction is not something that's easy. So to leave you tonight, well, I was wanted to give you something practical. How can I be satisfied? How can I be satisfied? Well, satisfaction is believing and trusting in the sovereignty of God. Satisfaction is believing and trusting in the sovereignty of God. You can't have satisfaction without trust. You're not going to be satisfied unless you wholly and completely trust Jesus. You see, satisfaction is to see God for who He really is and who you really are in light of that. Satisfaction is coming to the reality that God is in absolute and total control. And whatever the the end result is of your circumstances is okay because He's God. So how do you do that? Well, when uh, the desire shows up for there to be more or better or to work more or to do more or to, uh, to, you know, so you can get credit for it, learn to preach to yourself rather than to listen to yourself and saying that there's, there's more, there's more satisfaction in this, there's more, uh, you know, to crave this desire. No, the Bible says in Psalms 42, 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? So when the circumstances of life confront you, when tough times are in your face, uh, the psalmist writes, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. There's your satisfaction. So probably the most famous saying on satisfaction, apart from the Bible, was written by John Piper. And John Piper says this. You've seen it written on a few things around the church here. He says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. So you want to glorify God at work? You want people to know that you're living with the joy of Christ? Be satisfied with where you're at. Because God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. You find yourself in a tough situation. You don't know how it's going to end. Be satisfied. And that Jesus is sovereign. And that He'll work it out. So the last verse on your paper, don't miss it. Psalms chapter 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You see, that's God's desire that you and I be just like Jesus. Remember, He says the glory is uh, to be to walk worthy uh, of the glory of God, equal to the standard of God. How is that possible? Is that we live a life through Jesus Christ? That's where our satisfaction comes from. Well, I hope this was helpful for you tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.